Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports here at Just the News, where we're going to try to help you get the facts around the coronavirus hysteria. Yes, March Madness has turned into March Sadness. No fans will be at the NCAA basketball tournament this month. Uh, There won't be any audience for Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders uh, debate on Sunday. And uh, the Capitol is closed now. Flights from Europe are banned unless you're an American citizen coming back home. That is what has evolved over the last incredible frenzied 48 hours in America, where the coronavirus is getting real in the terms of the impact on the market, on everyday people, and even on our culture, where basketball just ain't the same. NBA, its season has shut down temporarily. March Madness won't have its big college base of fans. This is going to be an extraordinary few days. But the good news is we have a lot of news that isn't about coronavirus as well. I've got a major guest today. That's right, KT McFarlane, one of the country's most respected national security experts, the former deputy national security advisor, the first one for Donald Trump, who served under Mike Flynn until Mike Flynn uh, had his tenure come to an end abruptly with the FBI Russia collusion investigation. She is joining us. She has a new book out that you do not want to miss. Uh, and she's going to talk about the inside story of what happened uh, between her and the FBI, between her and Reince Priebus. And she has a great idea for people caught in the FBI dragnet that end up running, uh, running up hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal bills. She's got a novel idea to solve this and to take away some of the pressure the government has when they're squeezing someone to plead guilty to a crime they don't think they committed. You're not going to want to miss this. Plus, I've got another big exclusive on the Russia collusion story. This is big. Hint, it has to do with January 2017. We'll be back right after this commercial break. Stay tuned. You don't want to miss what we have on tap today. KT McFarland, Russia collusion, coronavirus. Stay tuned. folks we're back from the commercial break as promised and uh before we get started with the news the facts no opinions no conjecture 
uh, just the John Solomon reports, just the news presentation. Uh, just a quick word about our sponsors. We're so grateful for what they do to back this show to make it possible to deliver not only this podcast, but the entire news report that we're assembling each day at Just the News. So if you like what we're doing, here's a way you can show us. Go and help those sponsors buy their products, support their services. Let them know you love the fact that they're supporting us and making it possible to bring you Just the News. All right. So coronavirus, what a 48 hours. My head is still spinning. But here is the good news. You can go to the Just the News Dot com website right now and you'll get the real facts from our reporters our team have been working day and night to sort through all the spin and the hyperbole and all of the things that have you shaking in your boots and we give you facts so you can make up your own mind make good decisions for your family don't panic get the truth it's on justthenews.com here's a couple quick highlights for you yes the president ended all flights for 30 days all travelers coming in from the united states uh, back from Europe. Europe can't send people here. However, you may not have picked this up. If you're an American or you have a loved one who's an American overseas in Europe, the president is, 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 I repeat, is, capital I-S, going to allow your loved one to return. Americans can come home from Europe after they get a screening, but European travelers cannot. The reason why the coronavirus has gone wild in Europe, and the president doesn't want Europeans bringing that back into the country. So the facts are, Americans can come home, Europeans can't travel here for about 30 days. We'll keep you abreast on that, but that's the news. Second thing is, if you're holding out for a vaccine, a lot of people talking about it, that's a good development. But Dr. Fauci, the head of the NIH, the Infectious Disease Specialist of America, he's clear. It's a year-long wait. It's not going to happen before then. There are certain protocols for patient safety that have to be followed. So the way you're going to fight coronavirus this year before the vaccine gets built, wash your hands, stay away from people from sick, isolate. It's a simple thing. It's just like protecting yourself from the flu or any other thing. Uh, but don't put all your eggs in a vaccine basket just yet. It's a year off. We have a great video on justthenews.com that explains it. Go check it out. You get all the information you need. And yes, listen, a lot of things are going to change life in the next few weeks. The March Madness Tournament, there will be no fans, according to the NCAA, but you can still watch it on TV. Uh, on uh, the NBA season, it's come to an abrupt halt after one of the Utah Jazz tested positive for the virus. It's a temporary setback, particularly for people who love basketball. But there's always those old VHS tapes of Michael Jordan. They're worth watching. Or Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. There's plenty of ways to get your basketball fix without uh, throwing the TV out the window because you're so mad at what the coronavirus has done. And, uh, you know, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of panic. We're going to help you sort through the facts. And we're going to help you sort through uh, the fiction. Tell you the things that aren't true. Get you the facts you need. And your family can make good decisions. We're all in this together. Don't buy all the hype. Stay focused on the facts and do what's best for your family. That's what Just the News is trying to help you do with our report every day. All right. Speaking of another virus, another contagion, how about that Trump-Russia collusion delusion that we all fell for a couple of years ago? I continue to do reporting to break out new facts to help us understand what's going on. And here's why. 
the government bureaucrats who carried out the, the Russia collusion investigation have done a great job of dropping a little tidbit here, a little tidbit there. It's so incremental. If you're not following it day by day, you don't know what really happened or what's really being admitted to, what's really been revealed. In my last podcast, I talked about the importance of the most recent FISA court ruling, the one in which the new FISA judge, the new sheriff in town declared you did lie to me, FBI. You did mislead this court. You did lack candor. I'm calling you on it. That was an important development, maybe one you didn't get from the rest of the media. Here's a new one. I put together a whole bunch of documents that came out piecemeal over the last several months, and here's the headline that they show. The FBI, James Comey's FBI, Andrew McCabe's FBI, Lisa Page's FBI, yep, Peter Stroke's FBI, they actually determined... In January 2017, the very first month of President Trump's presidency, they they actually had the evidence that showed Russia collusion wasn't there. What was that evidence? Well, first off, they talked to Christopher Steele's primary source, yep, the dossier author, and that source, that intelligence informant, told them that Steele had exaggerated things, had included things that were a joke and treated it as though it were intelligence, that his dossier was just plain wrong about much of what it alleged about Russia collusion. That's a big deal. And when did the FBI know that? The first full week in January. Would have been great if we all knew that, right? Well, now we do because we have the documents to show. That's in the IG report. It's in the FISA court report. We now know that the primary source of evidence that the FBI used to get those FISA warrants against Carter Page targeting the Trump campaign, they were based on information the FBI knew by the first week of January was wrong and false. What else did we know? We know now, because of the documents released by the court and by the IG, that the FBI had multiple exculpatory statements by two of the key people they were targeting. Yes, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. They knew in January that both men had talked to undercover informants of the FBI and that they had denied the main primary allegations that were going on against them. For instance, Carter Page said he didn't meet with the two Russians whom Christopher Steele claimed he met with. Carter Page also said he didn't work on a platform change at the RNC convention that was more favorable to Russia on Ukraine. He didn't even have anything to do with it, and he told the FBI informant on that. And yes, we know George Papadopoulos told a separate informant he did not go and ask and try to get Hillary Clinton's emails from Russia, the hacked emails, because he believed it would have been an act of treason. All of that was in the FBI's possession in January 2017, just as President Trump was taking office. His first month in office, wouldn't it have been grand if we in the American public knew that, if the media hadn't fallen for this false narrative that was being built? But I got one more for you. This one is incredible. I'm reading this. This is from an excerpt from a letter that special counsel Robert Mueller's staff sent to Mike Flynn's lawyers back in 2018. And it goes back to, you got it, January 2017. Let me read this. Remember, let's set the stage why this is going to be an important revelation. Back in the first half of 2017, everybody in the media was saying Mike Flynn was a Russian stooge, an agent of Russia, might have been the guy that was conspiring to coordinate the Russia-Trump collusion, might have told the Russians, don't worry about the Obama sanctions, we'll get rid of them. Well, let me read you what the FBI told the Justice Department on January 30th, 2017. 
This is according to Robert Mueller's own letter to the Flynn defense lawyers. Here it reads, the important operative document. According to an internal DOJ memo dated January 30th, 2017, after a January 24th interview that the FBI conducted with Michael Flynn, the FBI advised, quote, the DOJ that based on the interview, the FBI did not believe Flynn was acting as an agent of Russia. Let me read that. FBI tells the DOJ, quote, based on their interview of Michael Flynn, the FBI did not believe Flynn was acting as an agent of Russia. Just let that sink in for a second. Go back and remember all the headlines in the Washington Post and New York Times, CNN, all those claims that agent that the FBI knew that Flynn was acting as an agent when he talked to Kislyak, when he had contacts with Russia, when he visited Putin back in December of 2015, I believe the date is. Guess what? The FBI, at the moment those headlines were going out, they were determining just the opposite. Flynn was not an agent of Russia, the memo says. Uh, They wrote the DOJ a specific document making that declaration. Just think about how badly you were deceived about that. Now, if that makes you angry, buckle your seatbelt, because when we come back from the commercial break, we've got KT McFarland, Flynn's former deputy as national security advisor. You're going to want to hear all the things that she went through with the FBI, all the revelations she learned. She's going to dish on former chief of staff, Trump chief of staff, Reince Priebus and something he asked her to do that she thought was inappropriate. Uh, you're going, and she has an amazing idea for all of those people caught in the web of the FBI's get Trump investigation. Maybe it's time the government pays their bills. That's the idea she has right after the commercial break. Special guest KT McFarland, national security expert, former deputy national security advisor, author of a new book that will send chills up your spine. We'll be with her in just a few seconds. Stay in the house. You're not going to want to miss this interview. Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door, in as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, we have a very special guest in the house, Katie McFarland, one of the country's best national security experts. You've seen her on Fox. You've probably known her as President Trump's first dep- deputy national security advisor. Uh, I know her as just one of the smartest people in all of Washington. And we're so lucky to have her here today because she has a new book out, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. It is an amazing book. You have to get it. Uh, It tells the real inside story, not only of Russia collusion in the beginning of the Trump administration, but all the dynamics in the world that gave rise to the Trump presidency. Katie, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure and an honor. Congratulations on the book. It's doing really well. Yes, it's a bestseller on a number of categories and on a number of lists. So I'm very pleased because I worked on it um, for almost two years, I wrote wow. every word myself and rewrote every word a hundred times myself. And um, and so I'm very pleased with the way uh, the tale I tell 
an important tale to tell, and I'm very happy with the way it's been received. Uh, it's a great read. In fact, sometimes you, you feel like you're in the middle of a, a political thriller novel, novel, and then you realize, well, this all really actually happened. <laughs> yeah, and the problem is and you're in the middle of it. You don't think you're ever going to get out of it. Oh, especially as I, you have that first-hand experience, don't you? Yep. Uh, it's, uh, it is amazing, and it was a, such a great read, and I appreciate you doing it for not only uh, uh, for us but for the whole country to understand what really went on in those seminal first months of the, the Trump presidency. Um, yesterday I had a story out, and we talked a little bit about what the FBI knew in January of 2017. They basically knew Russia collusion wasn't there, and yet they're doing all these things. And in your book, you have this chilling account of when the FBI shows up unannounced, and, uh, and starts to interrogate you, and then how that they try to turn that around on you later. Could you walk us through a little bit of what how the FBI first approached you and how it pivoted into this idea that maybe you did something wrong when, in fact, you were just trying to help them out? Well, I, it was about three months after I left Washington. I live on Long Island, and I had left Washington, left my government job, was preparing to be confirmed as an ambassador to Singapore, and I, got a, and I went to my hour in the gym, come home, Saw my husband. He left. We're alone. I'm all by myself at home, and I get a scratchy cell phone call. Long Island has really lousy cell phone service. And so I get on the phone, (laughs) and I hear a voice that says something like FBI interview. And I said, look, I can't really hear you guys. Could you send me an email or a, a bad cell phone reception? And the guy said, well, no worries. We're right outside. Can we come in? They were outside when they were they calling? Were right you? outside. I later realized, John, that they were probably parked right out from view of yeah, my driveway sure right. and probably waited for me to come in and my husband to leave. The old-fashioned stakeout. It was a stakeout. So they come in and flash their IDs, and I had a shocked look on my face when the lead agent said, I'm here from the Mueller investigation. Because I had assumed that, that it was just a routine, standard um, employee check on one of the people, one of the 400 people who had worked for me. And it turned out not to be. It was an investigation of me. And so I let them in. I said, look, I didn't have any contact with any Russians. It wasn't my portfolio. Um, So, and I've not really thought about these things for months. So if you're going to ask me questions, I'd be very happy to help because I, more than anybody, want to find out what the heck the Russians did, how they did it, and how we can prevent them from ever doing it again, never anybody else. So I sat them down at my dining room table. And I said, look, caveat up front here, I have no access to my files. I haven't looked at this stuff. I haven't thought about most of this stuff for months. And they said, no, no, no problem, busy time. There are no gotcha questions here. And I said, well, wait a minute. Am I under an investigation of some sort? Um, are you targeting me? Am I, should I, do I need a lawyer? And the agent said, well, we can't tell you not to get a lawyer. But... <laughs> We're here just because we want to get a sense from you. You had a critical position. We just want to get a sense of what was going on, kind of a lay of the land. You're just a fact witness to us. We're not coming after you. There's nothing here. Wow. So I said, okay. And at the beginning of every sentence, I, co- I made a caveat of, look, I don't exactly remember. So if I get this wrong or I only get it partially correct or I say it happened on Tuesday when it really happened on Wednesday – this is not me lying to you. This is just a faulty memory of normal human beings. Sure. And Especially they said, no, no, busy. don't worry, don't worry. Anyway, so for six hours later, um, maybe it was even as much as eight hours later by the time they left. It was sort of nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. And they, um, they went through a whole series of events during the transition and the early days of the Trump administration. And 
most of it was based on newspaper articles that the agent would pull out one at a time. Look, let me look at a New York Times article and say, do you remember this? What, what was going on at the time? And he would put the article back in his folder, pull the next one out. So at the end of all of this, um, I said, now, look, I just want to make sure that I still am not anybody you're investigating or I don't need a lawyer. And they re repeated the same um, kind of reassurances. So I said, what happens next? They said, well, you're probably never going to hear from us again. But they were, <laughs> you know, that's not true. That's they not come true back a all, month right? later. Yeah. They come back a month later. By this time, I talked to the former attorney general, Michael Mukasey. I talked to the, the head of litigation at Sullivan and Cromwell, who later became my lawyer. And I said, do I need a, a lawyer for any of this? And I said, no, as long as you tell the truth. Um, and as long as um, they're just come asking you about what happened, then you're okay. And, and then they warned me that, well, if you do lawyer up, you're going to have a very different interview with the FBI. Wow. And, and you're going to also, a lot of people in Washington will hear about it. They'll write about it as if you're somebody guilty. So our advice is don't lawyer up. This sounds pretty straightforward, a little unethical. I mean, a little unorthodox, but right. straightforward. Wow. So the next time I met with them and then the time after that, I met at the attorney general's office. He wasn't... Um, present with us because he wasn't acting as my lawyer. Right. But they knew that I had access to this kind of legal attention. Uh -huh. And yet they still reassured me, no, it's not gotcha questions. We understand everything. It's just your memory. I said, well, can I get access to my files when I met them the second and third time? And they would pull out an email or a text message or a phone log and say, what was this about? But it wouldn't be a complete email. It would be maybe the subject line was blocked out or the recipients were blocked out, or several of the three, four, or five paragraphs were blocked out. So it was all out of context, out of order, and they kept asking me questions about them. And I continued to really be thorough and put the caution on. At the end of all of this, at the end of, I'm saying now we're 20 or so hours into this, 30 hours into this, over three sessions, they hand me a subpoena and, and indicate my status has changed. <laughs> And so now you're a subject. So now I'm a, now they're looking at me. Right. And so I immediately, I'm leaving out some steps, but I immediately got the head of litigation at Sullivan and Cromwell, man is considered to be the best lawyer in the country for these purposes. Sure. And he said, look, you're in trouble now. They're setting perjury traps for you and everybody else. And a perjury trap is when they can trick you into saying something just because you've made a mistake. And right. then they can jump on it and say, oh, that's a, a lie. Yeah. You should have known the answer. And if you told us the wrong answer, then um, we're going to charge you with perjury. Mm. So what happens for most people at this point, I've now found out, most people just plead guilty yep. to get off the legal expenses. Because sure. I'm now clocking in at half a million dollars of legal fees, wow. wiped out our savings account, our retirement funds. Mm. Um, but I'm now a subject of an FBI investigation. And All because you served three or four months in the Trump administration. Yeah, and because I wouldn't lie. Right. And because I wouldn't plead guilty to committing a crime, which I didn't commit, and I wouldn't imply that anybody else had. And they really grilled what it, they were really after me for. They didn't care about me. I was collateral damage. Right. But what they wanted me to do was to imply that Trump had told me to tell Flynn to tell the Russians to let's horse trade on things. Wow. So they wanted Trump. And you knew that not to be true, right? That didn't happen. Did not happen. But they were trying to put those words in your mouth. And they your, wanted to put those um, words in my mouth. And they didn't, you know, they were way too clever to come right. out and say, we'll trade you this for that. Right. But the implication was there. And 
there was one point, John, where I'm now so beaten down, hundreds of thousands of dollars later, mm. I'm turning to my lawyers and say, and said, oh, they want me to come back again for another session? There's nothing more for me to tell them. I've already right. told them everything in detail dozens of times. Mm. My lawyer said, well, they have a narrative of what they think or they wanted to have happened. And you're not giving them that narrative. You're not backing it up. Wow. So they're just going to keep up coming after you until you do. So then I said, well, what do they want me to say? I'll just say it to make this go away. <laughs> At which point my husband, of 35 years, saint that he is, jumped in and said, no, you'll never be able to live with yourself if you lie. Wow. And, and they really want you to bring down the president. I, I want to go back because when I read this uh, in the book and when you just said it now, I want to go back to the, the time where you – start talking to the FBI about the lawyers. Now, everybody has a legal right under the Constitution. That's why people are read their Miranda rights. You have a right to have an attorney present. Did I hear you right when you said that the FBI said, if you exercise that right, you're going to get treated differently? No, my lawyer warned me that. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. No, no, no. I don't want to leave that impression. Because when I asked them, do I need a lawyer, they said, quote, we can't tell you not to get a lawyer, unquote. Right, right, right. But when I then went to a lawyer after I first met with them and said, I see. should I get a lawyer? They said, well, you could, um, but the F- we promise you the FBI will treat you differently. Treat you differently. Wow. The, um, well, it is an extraordinary tale. And I mean, until you experience it, you don't understand the full weight of the government and its ability to, to you know, corner someone and get what they need out of them. It's a remarkable, a remarkable step. And again, most people in law enforcement do all the right things, right? They're there to, but... Um, what we saw in this Flynn case. And, and what's amazing, you're going through this period of time in March to, it carries out into the summer of 2017, correct? Into the winter of Winter, yeah. So you're, and then, then the congressional investigations were in 2018. 18, so you go through round two then. And all along, it turns out that in January of 2017, before you're approached by the FBI, we now know, and I reported this yesterday, that one, they had disproven or debunked the Steele dossier, and two, they had come to the conclusion on January 30th, 2017, that your boss, Mike Flynn, was not an agent of Russia, was not an agent of Russia. So the basic premise of the entire investigation was completely gutted in January of 17, and months later, you're being interrogated about things they already know didn't happen. Yes, but but from their perspective, they know they can bankrupt you. That is the, we've given these people enormous powers right. and and rights and that you don't have. I mean, you right. have to prove yourself innocent. They don't have to prove you guilty. And that's, and that's good if you're going after terrorists and mass murderers. But when it's used as a political tool, which the senior officials of the Obama intelligence community, Justice Department, and FBI did, they used it as a political tool against what they perceived were their political enemies. And that's sure. the danger. They knew what they were doing, and they were bankrupting people. Mm. And I just had a deeper pocket than other people. And I also had a husband who said, honey, even if we go bankrupt and lose the house, you've got to just stand up for what you think is right. Do the right thing. And then they went away. Wow. It's it's an amazing story. And the way you tell it is so gripping. Uh, You feel like you're in the room with you all the way through. That's why you got to get this book, folks. If you haven't grabbed a copy already, get Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. It is a, you, once you start reading it, you can't put it down. It's such a great book. And uh, there's so many places to go there. And Katie, and I want to go back uh, to this idea of January, because um, as I've investigated the Russia case over the last three years, there are two things I learned. One is much of what happened in terms of targeting the 
Trump figures occur in London. And two, the case really falls apart in January 2017, and then it pivots into obstruction and other different things to try to keep it going. As you're taking over in uh, January, you're, you're, uh, uh, Mike's, uh, Mike Flynn, General Flynn's about to take over as National Security Advisor, as top deputy. Uh, do you remember an overture that came in in January from Great Britain, from our, our great allies in that country? Yes, it was, and it was odd because um, I had the first people, among the first people that General Flynn and I and um, other senior officials of the incoming Trump administration met with during the transition were the Brits. Right. And the, Brit, the British have a national security advisor and a deputy national security advisor and um, met and we met with their counterparts. I had known um, the national security advisor for the prime minister uh, for decades. Um, so these are not unu- people unknown to me. Sure. Uh, and, and we had conversations about, you know, what issues are you going to focus on? What issues are we going to focus on? The normal stuff you do when the, there's a changing of the guard. But then something very strange happened on January 6th. Um, we get, we have a briefing where the, I call them the four amigos because they were anything but friendly, which is the head of the FBI, CIA, um, and National Security Agency, and the Director of National Intelligence. So right. it was Comey, it was uh, Clapper, right. Brennan, and, and Admiral Rogers. Rogers. Right. Admiral Rogers. And I'm they sorry. came on January 6th to what was originally supposed to be a briefing for the president on a whole range of security issues, but focusing on Russian interference in the election. Right. And it came about a week after President Obama had imposed sanctions on the on the Russians. Not very significant sanctions, I'll point out, but sanctions nonetheless, and accused the Russians of interfering in the election. So the, the four amigos came to Trump Tower. They came to, we had a glass enclosed conference room right across from my little NSC office, which about with it, where we had about four people, myself, occasionally, General Flynn and one or two others. But we, we set up a briefing room and had the president-elect, uh, Trump, Pence, the incoming chief of staff, incoming head of um, the CIA, Mike Pompeo, myself, General Flynn, and a few others. And on the other side were the four amigos. And the amigos proceed to, in this highly classified briefing, nobody's allowed to take a cell phone or even an Apple Watch into the room. And no notes, too, right? And no, you're not allowed to take any notes. If you took notes, you had to surrender them as you left the room. Right. So this is the highest classification of anything. So we're told in pretty good detail about what the um, intelligence community thought the Russians had did and why they thought they had done it. President Trump, President-elect Trump, was terrific. He didn't. He interrupted a couple of times to say, "Please clarify this," or "What does that mean?" But it was a. It, I thought it was very well, despite the fact that it was extremely frigid and frosty. It was quite clear there was enormous animosity in the room between the four amigos and the incoming. Trump. They hadn't gotten over the election, had they? No, and particularly it, it, Trump had already made it clear he wasn't keeping some of them in his right. new term, and. And Comey was the debate that Trump was having internally with the with the transition team was should he fire Comey on day one because as Trump always said throughout the campaign and even after the campaign that Comey was a nut one minute he's supporting Hillary then the next minute he's not he's just all over the place and he just he just didn't seem real stable according in Trump's eyes and in the eyes of a lot of other people from the right or the left or Republican or Democrat 
But Trump decided he was going to keep him probably initially. I think the mistake Trump made was not firing him on day one. And Trump's Trump's concern with him wasn't really, you know, uh, Comey tries to make it about loyalty. But at the end of the day, Trump performance, right? It was performance, that he was incompetent, that he had... You know, they, he was a senior official of the FBI. They missed September 11th. They missed all these terrorist incidents in the United States. Comey's in the middle of investigating Clinton and Benghazi, but then he's not. But then she's exonerated. But, I mean, he was just, it was, Trump just thought he was a nut. He called him a nut because wow. he kept jumping all over in his positions. So we're having this briefing. At the end of the briefing, we're all walking out. Trump is thanking the amigos. He's thanking his own staff. People are nodding goodbye. And then Comey sort of signals to Trump, I want to talk to you about that other matter. And so Trump says, okay, and we're all standing there as if, okay, start talking about it, Comey. And then Comey says, oh, no, no, and he pulls Trump back into the conference room. And that's when he told him about the Steele dossier, but as I understand it, it was only about the more salacious, weird sexual things that were in the Steele dossier. Trump came out, he was pretty angry looking, and he just sort of left. Um, didn't talk to anybody, and then the amigos left. I mean, to me, in retrospect, I think that was a blackmail attempt. Mm. That Comey had information on Trump. It was all turned out to be lies. Comey knew it was a lie. Sure. In fact, within a couple of days the, the, of that briefing, right, it's the 6th, I think it's January 7th, the interview steals primary subsource, and he disowns it. <laughs> so Comey knows all of this is happening. Amazing. But remember, at this point, Comey, it wasn't clear whether Comey would be kept on by Trump right. as, the, as the FBI director or he would be relieved of his position, which Trump had every right to do. So I think in a certain way that was a veiled threat to Trump. Wow. I know all of this information. Amazing. The FBI knows that this information. It could come out. Hmm. Just just crazy. So as uh, So these briefings occur. And then a couple days later, do you hear from your friends over the pond in uh, Great Britain? Yeah, so, so we'd already established a relationship with them. Right. And as you point out, the Steele dossier comes out January 7th in BuzzFeed, the entirety of the Steele dossier, which is just so bizarre. I mean, I looked at it, and I thought, well, this is just crazy. This is Russian disinformation. Anybody can see this. Right, right. Um, and I got a, a text message, I mean, an email and a phone call from my British counterpart saying, um, are you going to comment on this? And I said, no, we're not going to have any comment. And he said, well, we're not going to come. We, of course, don't comment on these things, and we'll have no comment um, essentially about Steele because he was a former British intelligence agent. Right. And, and then the um, deputy national security advisor said, but as you know, our intelligence communities, the British and the, and the American, work so closely that it's often difficult to see where one ends and the other begins. Wow. Now, I didn't think about that at the time as being anything more than the obvious. Of course, we work closely together. But in retrospect, I think it was a signal that that their former agent was working very closely with our intelligence agent. Wow. And is it possible that uh, not only former, but their current uh, apparatus might have helped in some way, assisted in some way? Well, the implication was we're not going to comment. And as you know, were seamless. Now, I'll let you do the rest of the digging. Sure. But my conclusion to that was that they had been working closely with mm. the intelligence officials of the Obama administration. Yeah, and that, that's so consistent with uh, the reporting I did in 2018 where multiple U.S. officials directly involved this would kept telling me, 
this case is all about London bridges falling down. This case started in London and came this way. And in retrospect, now, after all we've learned, there's there's probably a lot of questions still to be asked about what occurred in London and the uh, going back to maybe late 2015, early 2016. But what an amazing approach you had from from the deputy national security advisor. Just incredible. Um, it was not expected. Yeah. Yep. And then as we know now, a couple days later, according to Mike Flynn's lawyer, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, and he only knows this because Mueller told him and grilled him about it later, uh, the, uh, Dep- the national security advisor, your boss, gets a more formal communique from the national security advisor in Britain. And according to the information that was provided to Flynn and his attorneys, it raises concerns about Steele's credibility or, con- or states that the British intelligence community had concerns about Steele uh, and um, what a remarkable three or four days the Brits were clearly, clearly trying to communicate to the new incoming administration some of their concerns. Uh, yes, I, I'm not familiar with the document that you talk about right. from the National Security Advisor of Britain to the National Security Advisor of the U.S. But, right. um, but to me, it was that the Brits understood there was a new president, they were going to work with a new president, and whatever happened before. I mean, I think it's always important to remind people, John, that it's illegal to spy on American citizens. That's right. And it's certainly illegal for the CIA to do it. And the FBI, if they're going to do it at all, they better have a good reason and they better have gotten permission to do it. That's right. The, the, another part that I write about in my book, which was which was which happens three weeks later, is when General Flynn had given an interview to the Washington Post asking about whether he had talked to the Russian ambassador about sanctions during the transition which was the, the, what launched the entire Russia hoax. Absolutely. Was this, the Steele dossier and this supposed phone call. Yep, double bear shots. And, and so I'm sitting in my office, and the, the NSD council and communications director come into my office, close the door, and say, we got a problem. And the problem is that the Washington Post has just called, and General Flynn gave them an interview yesterday saying he didn't mention sanctions to the Russian ambassador, but the Washington Post has a transcript of the phone call. Oh. So I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Transcript? Yeah. This, this, why are we, why are, who's wiretapping the national security advisor? That's right. We go and ask General Flynn. He honestly doesn't remember. I try, I'm assuming that because he said he hadn't mentioned sanctions to the Russian ambassador, that he had talked around it. Right. You know, in, in diplomacy, you don't necessarily say, I'll trade you this for that. That's right. You will talk around a subject. Much more subtle. It's much more subtle. That way, your boss, if he changes, his mind or the situation changes, you have a lot of back and wiggle room. So I always assume that when Flynn talked to the Russian ambassador, they implied sanctions, um, and it was pretty clear that they were referring to sanctions, but that they may not have actually used those specific words. But the Washington Post had the transcript. So I, after speaking to General Flynn, I go back into my office, and I'm thinking, oh, God, I have been plopped down into the middle of a, of a you know, HBO thriller where (laughs) somebody is wiretapping. Somebody in the U.S. intelligence community takes it upon themselves to wiretap the president's deputy national security advisor without letting the president know. And then leaks it. And then leaks it to the Washington Post. So this is something so classified, I didn't even know it existed. Wow. Much less had read it. And yet some reporters at the Washington Post had it. Yeah, no, it it isn't. Uh, Just to be clear for our listeners so they know, it's a crime. Uh, This was a highly classified document, an intercept, a secret intercept. In fact, it's leakage 
unveiled or unmasked the fact that there was a secret program targeting the Russian ambassador. He was being monitored regularly under a FISA. So we actually compromised security when we when this got leaked. But more importantly, uh, it's a crime in and of itself. And here we are three years later. You've been through a half million dollars of legal bills. The person who leaked that still hasn't been brought to justice. Nor have the reporters who received classified information. Yeah. Now, whether they had a transcript or read a transcript, to me, that's not a big difference. Right. No, a leak's but, a leak. That's right. But but my assumption was at that point a couple of things. If they were wiretapping Flynn, who else were they wiretapping? The president? Sure. His family? Everybody? And who gave them permission to do that? This is not some mid-level bureaucrat deciding he's going to wiretap the deputy national, I mean, the national security advisor. This has to come from very high up, and it has to come from people who weren't afraid of getting caught because what they were doing was not legal. Mm. It is chilling, and, uh, you know, so much of this story has come out in little fragmentary parts that it's hard to see the big picture until you you do what you do in your book, which you tell it in chronological order and the personal experience, and you realize that this was a political dirty trick carried out in great part by our intelligence community, uh, some unwitting, some probably witting. Uh, but uh, how do we stop this from happening? You went through it. You know, what is the what is the thing we need to do next to make sure that something like this never happens again? I would do several things. One, any legal expenses or otherwise that anybody who is either a witness or targeted by the intelligence communities in these cases needs to be reimbursed. Take away the weapon that they have of bankrupting people. Right. Because I've heard since I've, my book has come out, it's only been out 10 days, I must have heard from a dozen people who said the same thing happened to them. I also know from, from talking to people whose names I won't mention that people ended up settling and, and pleading guilty to crimes they didn't necessarily feel they had committed in order to get off of the legal expenses. Just to so take away family. that weapon. Yeah. They should not have the weapon to bankrupt people and to have to have them you know, forced to sell their houses, as General Flynn did, or take their children's college education funds. I mean, that's a powerful weapon that they use against people and their families. So take that off the table. And then number two, you know, it, most of the time when scandals happen in Washington, you know, the agency in question says, well, those bums are no longer working for us. We've gotten rid of a few bad apples, as if that's enough. And we're now having the debate over whether to reauthorize the FISA warrant that allows, that it was used, misused, to go after the Trump people in the campaign and even in the administration. I think people need to be held accountable until I personally am never going to let an FBI agent shake my hand, mm. much less come into my house unless I've got a lawyer standing right next to me. And That's how much this experience the, changed, right? You're, you're thinking, right? Yeah, and I thought these guys were our friends. I thought the FBI were supposed to be the guys who kept us safe from bad guys, not the guys who were bad guys themselves. And that may be an extreme reaction, but half a million dollars later in a career that's in tatters, that's yeah. how I feel. And if I'm feeling that way, and I was the most powerful woman in government, I was the deputy national security advisor. That's yeah, such that an important job. Ten, ten, ten steps away from the Oval Office. And if they can do that to me, they can do that to anybody. And I don't think that just getting rid of a few, quote, bad apples is enough of a house cleaning. I think that we need to find out, and, and thank goodness for reporters like you and others who are keeping this alive, even if it is a drip by drip by drip. Find out what really happened, and then call the people into account, not just a few mid-level guys who are sacrificial lambs, 
that get to the top of it because otherwise, you know, they'll do it again. It's too powerful a weapon to be put into the hands of people who will abuse it. I think we need to find out who was responsible. And if it wasn't illegal, it should have been. And I think those people should be brought to justice. And if they're not brought to justice, the incentive for the next guy to do it, maybe this time it'll be against a Democrat. Right. Right. That's what the president has said many times. Listen, this could boomerang on you. That's why we have to stop it as a, as a practice. If the rich and powerful Donald Trump, the most you know, wealthy, famous, powerful, rhinocerosite president we've ever had, <laughs> if they can do that to him, just think of how anybody else yeah. would crumble under that pressure. Well, yeah, the everyday, the everyday man and woman in America. Uh, one of the things that strikes me in this book and uh, are these moments where you realize you're faced with a very important decision and, and there's a popular, cheaper way to get out of this and your time and again, you know, are in consultation with your lawyers, your husband, and just your own conscience, you try to make the right decision. And one of those occurs, um, I think, in I think it's late February, if I remember from the book, where uh, Flynn has resigned. The uh, Russia scandal is at an all-time peak. Uh, the media is all over it, and Reince Priebus comes to you and suggests something to you, and you have to make a decision what you're going to do. Could you walk us through that anecdote? I found it to be one of the most compelling parts of this, uh, the narrative. Well, Flynn had been fired. I had been fired because I'd worked for Flynn and the new national security advisor, right. General McMaster, wanted Not his, his own, own person. Yeah. Um, and so um, I agreed to stay on for a transition. I was pretty peeved because I was the one that had held the place together. And, a, and just a few days before, the, the Bannon and Priebus and he begged me to stay. But then they decided they were going to fire me, but rather than go away empty-handed and be fired for no cause, um, uh, they said, you want to be you want another job? And I said, no, the only job I've ever wanted. And Washington is National Security Advisor, so that's off the table. And then I said, well, how about being an ambassador? And I said, okay, let's talk about that. So they offered me ambassador to Singapore and checked with my wonderful husband who said, yeah, we just moved to Washington three weeks ago, but we'll move to Singapore. <laughs> we'll move again, right? We'll move again. Why not? And so then um, later that day, Priebus came into my office and said, well, the, pres- the president, not him, he says, the president has asked me to get from you a couple of things. One, um, in your resignation letter, please say something nice about the president. And I said, well, no problem there. I believe in Trump, and I believe in his cause. And then he said, and we, we, if the president would like you to, to write a memorandum to me, an email to me, saying that two things. One, that Trump had never asked Flynn about whether the strong dollar was good for America or bad for America. And number two, that Trump had never directed Flynn to talk to the Russians about sanctions. And I said, well, about those things, um, first of all, let me get back to you. And so I I went back to my office. I called the National Security Council lawyer and said, this is what I've been presented. I don't want to do it. He said, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't. Why would you be writing a memo to the record um, about this? It looks like it's a quid pro quo for the Singapore position. So it looks bad for the president. And it looks bad for you because it just looks weird. Why would you be doing a memorandum for the record about this? So I thought about it. How was I going to handle it? And when Priebus came 
back to the office later that day. I decided I was going to tell him, I'll write the nice letter of resignation, but I'm not going to do this memorandum for the record, this email that you want me. It's just not appropriate. Right. And, and it, what, was it true? That Trump had asked? No, it was right. not true. Yeah. And Which is what I wrote down later. But in any event, the um, I had talked to the National Security Council lawyer because I had assumed that he would get it back up the chain and have have um, Priebus withdraw that request because it wasn't the right thing to do. But right. I couldn't ask him to withdraw it, but somebody else might, like their lawyer. Did it work? So that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Priebus comes into my office and says, hey, about that thing I asked you earlier today, um, it, it's just forget we even had that conversation. <laughs> and I said, well, I will write a nice letter of resignation um, about the president. But as far as the other things, I don't. I can't tell you one way or the other. Right. I wasn't there, and I'm not going to write about something I didn't know was true or not true. So previous then says, no, no, pretend we never had this conversation. It didn't happen. You don't have to write any letters. Just let's just leave it there. So I was so rattled at the end of that, I went and wrote a memorandum for the record, so which had, I gave to my yeah. lawyer saying, describing this whole event. A wise decision given, given the consequences and then all that you went through. Well, uh, Katie, what, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. It's a, it's a tale of of what modern politics is doing to our system. It, it scares off. I think one of the things you walk away from the book uh, uh, thinking is we're going to scare off talented people like you from even going into government because the cost is just not worth it. Um, but uh, I can't thank you enough for the book and for spending the time today and for sharing your story because uh, the American public is just beginning to get a more complete glimpse into all the abuses that occurred in trying to create the illusion that there was Russia collusion in the Trump administration. Really remarkable. So thank you very much. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the Just the News podcast, where we give you just that, news, facts, information, no indoctrination, no opinion, no speculation. We hope you enjoyed today. First, I think we helped sort some fact from fear, fact from irrationality in the coronavirus scare. Uh, we gave you some breaking news on the Russia collusion unraveling, some really important information, I think, about the January 2017 unraveling of the FBI's case. Wouldn't it have been great if we knew it back then? And finally, we gave you an incredible story with KT McFarland, her inside story of dealing with the FBI, what it was like inside the Trump White House, how the Russia collusion story and investigation cost her more than a half million dollars of legal bills, and her idea for how we might be able to fix that for future witnesses in politically tinged investigations. I'm John Solomon. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports. We'll be back next week with a whole new edition, new exclusive guests, big headlines. Please stick with us. In the meantime, go often and visit justthenews.com. We're proud of the team and what we're doing to serve your news interest. Until then, have a great weekend.